Welcome to another podcast from the Rotary and Community Service Radio Show, which is now in its 11th year. Our show is heard every Friday between 6 and 8 p.m. on Community Radio Station 94.1 FM, 3WBC, and is also streamed live on the World Wide Web at www.3wbc.org.au. Here is a recorded interview first played on the 4th of November 2016 by Ian Salick with Dr Mark Ellis AM on the Rotary Sumba Eye Program. Mark Ellis is a member of the Rotary Club of Glen Ferry in District 9800. I'm delighted to welcome to the 94.1 FM 3WBC microphone an outstanding Rotarian who lives by Rotary's motto of service above self. Dr. Mark Ellis AM, an ophthalmic surgeon and a member of the Rotary Club of Glen Ferry, who travels to the island of Sumba in Indonesia to restore sight. A very warm welcome to you, Mark. Uh, thank you, Ian, and thank you for inviting me back. I, we had an enjoyable time maybe a year ago when we spoke about this. It was almost a year ago, um, and I thought that uh, it would be an excellent idea to get you back because I certainly know that you've done another trip uh, for your wonderful eye surgery in Sumba in Indonesia. Uh, Mark, before we talk about uh, your Sumba eye program in Indonesia, uh, I always ask our guests uh, what really motivated them in the first place to join Rotary. And uh, I'd like to do the same with you. What was your motivation in joining Rotary? Well, everyone's motivated and I, I don't think no one joins Rotary unless they're really interested in getting in, working in the community. Rotary has a good name and actually because of Rotary has many projects that you can just get, get your teeth into. Uh, when I joined Rotary in 2007, uh, that was about the time the College of Surgeons asked me to set up a program which I incorporated with Rotary. But... It was looking around for setting up a program, but you already had lots of other programs going within the community. Now, Rotary has a great name, and it's a good community charity group to work with. And just a good example, my first interview with the Indonesian consulate back in 2008 was because of the Rotary name. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have got in. Were they aware of Rotary in Indonesia? Yes, yes, they were aware of Rotary. From what I understand, uh, they knew what we did and that's why they were interested in what we were proposing and this is when we were proposing to go to Sumba to uh, set up a permanent eye program. And Mark, you're in the Rotary Club of Glen Ferry as uh, I've already mentioned. Why Glen Ferry? Good question. Every uh, club has its different aspects. My father is actually an honorary memory, or he did pass away last year, but he's an honorary member of Carlton and I'd been introduced to what they get up to and he was also a normal member out in East Keeler. But it's a convenience. You've got to find a club where you can guarantee you can turn up. As you know, it's only a 50% commitment. I don't have to be there all the time. But Glen Ferry's got the good, a good um, mix. It's about a third women. Uh, they've got a huge amount of interesting uh, projects that we do within the community and mine is just one of the projects that we do. We've got the men's shed, we've got, uh, we do bread runs with the salvos, there's lots of interesting things. If you join like our club there's lots of uh, uh, projects we can get you involved in and that's good. So I'm just one part of a big club. 
you are, but a very important part of a big club because those community projects are important to us, obviously, local, locally, uh, but your international project has always taken pride of place within the Rotary Club of Glen Ferry. Most clubs have, obviously, uh, domestic programs or national all programs all clubs and international. Have an international project. We were just, I guess, lucky that I was in the right position to be able to provide it for uh, Glen Ferry Rotary. Well, how long have you been there for? Well, it's... Well, how long with the Sombra you're talking about? No, in the club. Oh, in the club, 2007, I, I, as I mentioned before. And I, that, I came along, basically I was asked to give a talk because I'm part of the East Timor I group and I was asked to give a talk and I thought, oh, gee, I've been looking around for a good club. And this was near to my practice in uh, Glenferry Road and so it was natural that I come along. And also, it doesn't lunchtime meetings or breakfast meetings didn't suit me. The nighttime meeting suits you. So you go to the club that suits you that you can guarantee you can turn up to. So very and the nice good. people in it as well. Well, that's good that you think of them as nice people. Most Rotarians are nice. In fact, all Rotarians are nice people. Well, yeah, it, it actually it's very impressive. We've just had a meeting where we've got honoured our uh, some of our. Uh, older fellows and it's just amazing when you uh, see what they've been doing over the time. But look at you Ian, you were president of the club and now you're a media mogul. <laughs> I don't think uh, no, we, can't talk, we can't talk about that in uh, in our interviews but uh, have thank you. Blushing, yeah. No, you can't have me blushing. But uh, tell me this, uh, the Sumberai program uh, got started when? What happened was, uh, being part of the East Timorai program, the Royal Australian College of Surgeons and their International Affairs Department wanted a team to go to Indonesia. In fact, two teams went, but I was asked to head the one and I was given Sumba. So it was just told, can you go to Sumba? Now, we did a trip there and we, it didn't go so well. We didn't know any NGOs on the ground, but I got to meet people over there who later on sent me emails saying, could you come across, we'll help you set up an eye program. And it was about the time Rotary was asking me to do uh, international projects, so it was just beautiful timing. And I was very, uh, was very grateful that uh, the committee, the Glenferry committee, listened to me, listened to my arguments, accepted, and then backed me. Uh, and that's, the rest is history. Uh, it's become a it won the Bankeris so, uh, Scholarship or great best international award a couple of years back because we tick all the boxes as I hope to outline in this talk. Well I would very much like you to do that but we should start by asking you where Sumba is within the very large nation of Indonesia. Well Indonesia is our, uh, one of our very close neighbours and it shows how ignorant I was because I had no idea where Sumba is but in fact uh, it's Sumba is part of what we call Nusa Tengora Timor Nusa Tengora Timor means East Indonesia. Uh, it's one of the three major islands in that area with a lot of other islands involved. So I always tell people, if you look at East Timor, West Timor, then look across, that's where Sumba is. Look, across to, the, look across to the west. To the west, sorry. And then above it's Flores and more west is Bali. And Mark, who is in your team? How many go over there? Well, since our last talk, a lot has changed and uh, improved and it's not just the Australian team now. We've set up a collaborative uh, eye service with the Hassan University in Makassar, the ophthalmology department. Very enlightened doctors and very skilled doctors. Have, we've now induced them to come and work with us. So we've got a series of Indonesian doctors, 
we've got the eye care nurses on the ground, the Somla Foundation, and then I take a team of, well, we run two trips, a screening team and teaching, but the main trip you're alluding to is three surgeons, two nurses, four optometrists, and some people to help with the paperwork. Well, that's uh, given us an idea of their skills. Uh, when you get there, um, what's the first thing you do when you arrive? You've got to get your equipment in. Well, yes, uh, the problem's getting a little bit less over time because thank you also to the international award that Glen Ferry got, uh, we got $30,000 from International Rotary so we could buy a lot of the equipment and we can then leave it over there. I don't have to get lens of equipment and that really takes down from saying uh, 50 to 60 boxes of equipment over, we, like we took 40 over this time. And so every time we can the more we can leave in the microscopes and equipment, the less we have to take back, and the less problems we have getting through customs and the uh, explaining what we're doing. So uh, we're very lucky with the NGO on the ground that we can actually store gear there. And when we get there, my first thing is, where is our gear? I want it out. And the next thing is, is the hospital ready? Now we're very fortunate when we get there, the hospital now knows what we want. We walked in this time. The two tables, the way I like it, were set up. Of course, there's no sterilizer or anything like that, but we bring that along. But they do their best in the C-grade hospital to help us because it's a very impoverished island, not much uh, equipment on it. It's third anything. world. It, well, it's what we now call developed world. Right. It's, a, it's a better word. Uh, you know, we're all politically correct nowadays. So, yes, we would call it third world, but it's more uh, low-resourced area. And getting over the logistical nightmares that you had in the early days of getting equipment there has made the operations commence a lot earlier I take it when you exactly. uh, when you arrive how, how long does it take well, uh, before you get involved in surgery well literally on the Monday uh, we had a bit of problem this time because we couldn't get away our equipment across because we couldn't operate till the next day but uh, Literally, if we get all, we do have logistics problems of getting the equipment across because the 20 odd boxes, uh, half of them were left back on the island of Bali, so we had to wait the next day to come across on the plane. Uh, we are lucky that we've got some Indonesian people who do help us, but uh, sometimes the plane is too full, they can't take away our equipment because there's other people on the plane. So, literally, we've got the eye care nurses who go out two or three months prior going around and so we've got the patients ready and they, they had all the patients coming in and that's an advanced team in advance they've been no they're the people on the islands they're the people we're trained they go out now and they can pick the cataracts they bring them in and they've got so when we get there we literally can start assessing them but unfortunately we couldn't start operating until the Tuesday this time but that's uh, life uh, how we we get used to uh, getting around things but logistically these days is a lot easier than it was in the first instance oh very very much easier because we've been going since 2008 to this particular spot and they know exactly what we want uh, it's taken a while to get them round to knowing exactly what we want. Well, you notice every time we go there, it's easy. Now, a good example is, like, the IQ nurses at the start would bring in 20 patients, and these patients would come 20 kilometres over hilly territory, bring them all in, and there's only two cataracts we'll do out of it because the others aren't suitable. Well, now when they bring that 20, 18 will do. So it actually gets us very busy. In the past, we're hunting for patients sometimes because we have to go 
do it ourselves, but it's already done for us. They're out there bringing them in. So they're lined up effectively. Yes. Well, the eye care nurses are local nurses employed by the Sombra Foundation whom we sponsor, and they're taught almost a, a equivalent of a nurse optometrist. So they can do glasses, they can look at the patients. We've given them donated equipment. Uh, part of that's from Rotary, of course, and from other donations, so they can examine the patients properly. And they go out, the, the optometry giving site gave them a motorbikes. They can actually go out in the villages and uh, do their care. As I said, it gets better every year we go. It's very exciting. And are cataracts the major focus of your trips? Two major focuses, to, which is an easy blind solution. One is cataract, that's the surgical, enterogens, which is the sun damage, but also glasses. You can't get glasses. You can't get glasses on the island. Uh, there are one or two shops we've discovered propping up, but they don't know how to do, develop it, and they come uh, to our optometrist saying, well, glasses I bought in the city don't work. So you've got to go to Bali if you want to get glasses. So just a simple set of glasses. Well, you know, the world would be ruled by uh, 30-year-olds if it wasn't for reading glasses. Do you take across a multitude of prescriptions and glasses? Absolutely. How many How many pairs of spectacles oh, gee, would I you take? I the optometrist, but we're just taking... Just roughly. Oh, uh, 300? 300 400. Now, we continually keep a store because we can store... Not only do we store our medical equipment, we store the glasses and the girls the eye care nurses go out and actually when they fit they will give the glasses out so we can they send us an inventory all the time we kind and keep it uh, topped, up. topped up and so there's actually two trips we do each year one is just to go do screening and teach the eye care nurses and we take a whole lot of glasses then but the next time we take more again and so we're topping up the glasses they're ready made they're cheap Chinese uh, and it's what we can afford. Uh, we work on donations. So they cost us, uh, I would have to ask the optometrist, maybe about a dollar, two dollars for the glasses coming from China. That makes it very easy and very, very... Uh, I've got, uh, got some very good stories about happy people being able to go to school because they can see and teachers who can teach. Well, we want to come back and talk about some of those positive results that you get because it is all about outcomes. Mark, uh, what are the operating conditions really like there? Well, we alluded when I get there that they are very good at setting it up, but we do notice it gets dilapidated every year we go. The tiles on the floor are a little bit more broken. It's a pity they're not really into maintenance. But uh, the air conditioner was working this year, or one of them, so we were a bit happier. It wasn't working as well last year. So we're working in high 20s in the 30 degrees and without air conditioning it's almost impossible to put gowns and gloves on. So also what happened this year we were very fortunate we got more funding and took a steriliser across and just as well we did because their steriliser had broken and the one they were using was a bit substandard as far as sterilising. So we now... Uh, the, there's also the water. Uh, it's clean, but of course we need to be careful washing our hands, so we tend to use alcohol washers a lot. It get, to give an example of how hot it gets there, I have to often operate without my, my operating mask because my glasses fog up so much. And it's very uncomfortable operating all day and supervising, of course, the Indonesian doctors when they're operating. Mark, what are the sanitary conditions like generally in the hospital? Uh, not very good. Now, there's a, such a thing called a mandi, which is an Indonesian wash. Uh, look, it's clean, as clean as I can get it, but there's often you're washing your hands in buckets and the, the toilet is a squat toilet, so it's things that we're not used to. 
Uh, overall, though, the sanitary conditions are reasonably good, and they do try their b- hardest to keep uh, uh, you know, the shoes that we change our shoes when we go in, and we wear masks. But I get in a bit of trouble, but I I can't see my glasses bog up so I often have to take the mask off. Uh, I guess that would answer the question of that. It, point. it does, but have there been improvements made since you started the trips there? In the hospital. In the hospital. No. Uh, they, actually, they built a new hospital, a new theatre. So I, I say that wrong. When I first was there, we, the theatre was in another area, but they have built a new theatre, and that's what I was alluding to. The maintenance isn't good, and every year you go, you see something's broken more. They don't spend a lot of time on maintenance, and that's what worries us about leaving our equipment around. So we do store it until we come back and bring it out. Is there an understanding of the requirement for? equipment to be well maintained and there for there to be the most, the optimum sanitary conditions that can be achieved or is there just a, a sort of cultural lack of understanding of the requirement for that in surgery? I think it's more lack of education because I should point out that the housing unit doctors that come across what's made it much easier is we can talk with the locals because the doctors speak the language and I'll give you a good example because why they couldn't use the new steriliser is they didn't have what was called distilled water. Even though Dr Abra tried to explain to them what distilled water was, they had no concept. So it's education and that's why we're over there educating. So uh, we did take our own distiller so we're making our own uh, water as well because if you use the local water, the salt and the dirt will ruin the steriliser within a couple of goes. But you've had improved equipment, a lot of it supported by the Rotary Foundation, haven't you? We bring it all over. It's all brought by us. So all the equipment we've brought, and of course I shouldn't say everything's locked up because a lot of the equipment is given to the eye care nurses to go out and use. Uh, I'm talking about the microscopes. We try because we know they won't be looked after if we leave them out. And those nurses are now trained to not only perform procedures, but they understand the equipment. That was something in the early days that you were really having to work pretty hard on to get trained right. people. Uh, they're, good at, uh, they're good at getting the glasses going. They know that we've got to look after the equipment. And we've got to realise we're very humid territory. We, we go in the cooler time when it's 20, 25-30 each day. What time of the year do you go? Well, we've got two trips. The screening one, which we alluded to before, is in May this year, and that will be probably going into uh, the harvest season. We try and go round... See, we're basically working in a, 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 a farming farming type area, and there is city people, but or town people, not city, but We've got to, go to take our trips round away from wet season. So May is just before the harvest and at the end of uh, the summer we go across in late August the next trip because that's when they can come in and the rainy season comes next. Mark, um, give us a couple of good case outcomes that really tugged at your heartstrings. This year it was interesting. We did a, a, a boy with bilateral cataracts and it was great to see him actually uh, f- pointing to the letters down the chart. What does that mean, bilateral well, cataracts? Sorry. Both eyes he was blind. Good good question, actually. We get carried away. He could only see light in each eye. So he couldn't walk. He, he would have to be led everywhere. So, after How old was he? Well, to be honest, I don't... I, he looked about 
four, right, probably right. with six or yes, seven, yes. because they're so malnourished, yes. which we will talk about later, I suppose. But uh, this is just a good example, and so it was good to see him actually reading some of the letters down the chart. I should add, the most interesting one was we did a teacher's cataract, and at the end he was really happy with the results, so he started talking and on the next day when we took the patch off, and he was talking to... Uh, uh, to our girl, the doctors who were Indonesian because they could translate and for once we're getting an idea so we're talking to an educated man who's just had his cataracts done and what he did was he couldn't teach when his vision went he uh, lost his job he lost his employment he said it was like living in a cave and he was sitting there and said I can see right down the chart now I can go back to work so that says You've a lot. You've given him quite, a, quite a new life, yeah, haven't you? And with the new glasses. And in fact, he saw very well without glasses. So you, it, but when we're talking, we're talking with farmers and people who don't, they speak dialects. We've got no idea what's happening. We can imagine it. But to talk to an educated man telling us that, you know, this is giving his life back, it was just amazing. But the look on the faces of the younger patients, the children that you have, oh. must be so uh, engrossing. Well, especially for them with just giving them glasses because they're filing, falling behind at school because they can't see. So just giving them a basic set of glasses so they can see the blackboard uh, improves their educational uh, chances and even employment. I should say that, you know, of course, when there's an old person who's blind, uh, the family member, family's very important there, so he's poor old grandma stuck in the corner or well, the kid has to stay home from school to look after the grandma because the parents have to go out into the field. And, and quite so often they're ostracised, don't they? Well, withdrawn would be a better word. Yes. They're looked after yes. but they can't, they've got dull expressions because they've got no stimulus. There's nothing stimulating them apart from the rocks they kick as they walk along. Yes. So you've got to realise we're not looking about flat land like outside down the road here. We're talking about a hilly territory, volcanic ground very rough on the feet. So the conditions are pretty rugged and their ability to traverse those conditions are so difficult without eyesight. And, and, and they do it. Amazing. We've got lots of stories. But what I do delight is when they're lying down having their operation, you can see their feet and they're mangled from you know, years of walking over rocks and their toes bent the wrong way. It, it is really interesting watching. It, it's, it's you don't realise the impact you're doing. It's a, a lifestyle that we can't imagine really and this is why you make it so much better for people in it's that environment. It's called cultural shock when you go there. I bet it is and too. It was originally, yeah. but I've been going for about 12 years now. It doesn't make you immune, but it, uh, it must give you a, a real sense of achievement that you are changing lives so wonderfully. The interesting thing is you're so busy, you don't get a chance to think about it until later. And it's like I've just seen a video of that teacher was sent over by an Indonesian doctor. He had made it and he was explaining the cave. And I thought, oh, gee, that's what he was saying. And it was, it was interesting. So I get a chance later. You're often too busy at the time because the numbers, you've got to get through the day and you've got to get the thing rolling. Otherwise, it all slows down. Mark, uh, I wanted to ask you a little earlier, and you mentioned nourishment. I wanted to ask you if diet is a contributing factor Oh, to the conditions. What, what do they lack in their diet, the locals in Sumba, that uh, creates the incidence? Well, again, it's a combination of poor cultivation. They only have one crop a year. Bali has three crops a year because they've got uh, uh, irrigation. Uh, also, it's the ignorance of what is the best thing to eat. And so you'd like a vitamin A deficiency, your liver and eggs is fantastic too. And if the kid eats enough eggs, but they don't get the eggs. And so uh, malnutrition is a high... Uh, well, you're also talking about fam impoverished families with 13 kids. 
and I've got examples we'll talk about later where you know, at the end of the rides are little runs because they're getting no food at all and they're being forgotten. What do they eat? What's the staple? I presume rice. Uh, to be honest, that's a good question. I haven't seen the meeting, but it would be rice, uh, basic rice. But they, it's putting greens in the food, having eggs, as I've mentioned, uh, access to milk. Uh, it's also ignorance in what is the best thing to have. Now, I should point out, vitamin deficiencies happen in Australia. I was reading a report in The Age just recently where a boy was vitamin A deficient because he was eating McDonald's... Sorry, uh, chips and hamburgers yes, all the time yes. <laughs> but it, that is a big point that pe- malnutrition comes in Australia in different forms as well and so it's not just over there but also over there there's trauma, there's the sun damage uh, there's genetics involved as well because uh, we have cataracts over here in paediatric kids but of course we operate on them a lot earlier uh, they don't get as bad as these but specifically in relation to diet their access to uh, to food of that quality and the availability in terms of volume uh, is uh, very much reduced, isn't it? And that well, it depends is what they're growing. Yes, and uh, depends if the parents have got enough money to be able to buy, say, fish, or uh, they'll they'll for their ceremonies they often will call a pig or uh, a cow. It's a big thing, but you know that will impoverish a family. Just so they won't kill a pig just for a daily eating. so There won't be some ad hoc meal treat. Well, of course, when the, the rains come, if their crops haven't come through, they go hungry for the rainy season. So they can store, but there's a big family. They all look after each other. Is the advice you give uh, about diet, is that part of what these trained nurses are telling them, to encourage them as much as possible? Uh, very good point. The Sulma Foundation runs its own malnutrition program. And so what happens is we refer the kids to the malnutrition uh, program and as a result I can give a good example of a child we did cataracts on one year then the other year did the cataracts and every year he came back he was getting taller and bigger and we couldn't believe it because he entered the malnutrition he was number 12 runt in a 13 family and uh, the malnutrition nurse said oh I know the family but I don't know him because he'd been farmed off to another family but the problem is when we got him back about three or four years later we said, why aren't you at school? Because he could see, he could run around, but the parents said, oh, he's told to come home. He, he's mentally retarded from years of malnutrition, and so it was too late. We That's got him so seen. sad. It is sad, and it's ridiculous, but you know, it was just too late. And he, uh, it's, the, he couldn't handle at school, and they just said, don't bring him. But the, I, the actual malnutritionist, I was there, she was arguing with the parents, they don't believe the teacher's taking him back as he needs some school. Yes, yes, yes. Mark, how many will go over with you for your next trip? And when is your next trip? Well, uh, in May we will be doing the screening trip where we go with four optometrists. And I, we actually, I go over to MacArthur and give lectures at the university. And Where is MacArthur? Uh, Sulawesi, sorry. Right. Uh, Sulawesi, beautiful part. Third, fifth biggest town in Indonesia. Uh, Macarthur. So I've been there about three or four times. It's a goodwill as part of the trip. Then I go over and saw and join the optometrists who have been teaching. But what I did last year was take some of the optometrists with me to teach them. And what's happened is they ran teaching courses for the doctors there to show them how to use some equipment. Yeah, just show them different ways of doing things. It's education. Getting more confident all the time, the locals. 
Well, it's also, I'm very impressed with them and very impressed with the people I've worked with, but they've got, had a good education and they're dedicated, good doctors. So giving them a spur on, I mean, hopefully before I die, I won't have to go back to Sumba before, apart from touring. Well, I think they'll always need you, Mark, with your experience and, and uh, training ability. Um, Mark, um, are the number of cases decreasing or are you still handling as many? And how many do you handle on average? Well, we've got 100 cases done this year. That's a, with, between the two Indone- the Indonesian doctors and myself uh, and our group working. We got through 100 cases and that included 68 cataracts, tridiums and some laser treatment. We do take a laser across. Uh, what's interesting is, as I alluded before, with the eye care, nurse, with the eye care nurses uh, going out in the village, see... We got a bit worried, thinking, oh, we're not getting enough cases coming through and we'd have to scour it. But they, they're getting out there, they're picking it. So, in fact, we've got enough numbers. In fact, when the bus load comes through at about 10 in the morning, we've got enough for the rest of the day. We've got to say, look, hang on, no more, because we won't get through it. And we're working solidly through to about 5.36. Is there ever a time that you believe uh, there will be a very minimum amount of cases or is it something that's just endemic? No, we go further. There is some talk about maybe next year we'll take the surgical team across to East Sumba because what's happened we've noticed people coming from over the island and we thought well maybe if we, through Klaus Spoke who's for the Sumba Foundation, he's looking into the feasibility of taking our team to the other hospital in Wangapu uh, which is a a big government hospital. And expanding it. Mm. Are other people that that you've looked after coming back to you for further rectification or remedial? Regularly I see patients say, oh I did his cataract last year, or someone did the cataract last year and here he is for the other one. It's a vote of confidence that they come back. Also you'll see them coming for their glasses the next year. And so you do see them coming back. But you're right, we were worried about the numbers, but since we've got the eye care nurses confident, we seem not it's not a problem. But they are far reaching, they are going further out. And uh, into the island. And and Mark, um, how many will go over with you on this next trip? The same well, one? Well they usually ten to twelve. Right. Uh, uh, the sorry, that's the we got way late, I was talking about the matrix. The surgical trip in late August will have from our team, we'll have three surgeons, two nurses, four optometrists, plus some auxiliary staff. Uh, the Hassanet University usually sent about four surgeons across, and uh, we've got the two nurses. I think I've mentioned that already. So it, it's a big team. We've had about 16 there. It's a wonderful effort, and I know that Rotarians have gone across regularly and I think you call them orderlies don't yes, you? Yes it's always a good experience and it's a bit of culture shock but uh, it puts them out everyone in, out of their comfort zone But and that's probably something I take easily. I just say it's like fancy camping Yes. and I should add that the hotel owner looks after us very well Mona Lisa at Wakabubak because he likes what we do and he sets it all up. He actually is very good liaisons and he actually drives us up in his jeep so we get free transport sometimes. And Mark the two Burundara Rotary clubs because this station is a is a mix of Burundara and, and Whitehorse. We should mention Q and Glen Ferry. Yes, so we've been talking about Glen Ferry because that's my dedicated club. But of course, we should thank Peter Stewart, who's the optometrist from the Q uh, Rotary, for his because he's the founding member with me, 
and uh, with Peter Lewis. And you probably should get Peter on one time. And uh, we should have a talk to Peter, the optometrist. We should do that as well. He's a good talker. He'll be right. Well, Mark, you've done a fine job in telling us about Rotary and what they do to uh, help in a country, obviously, or a part of a country that is very, very poor and where uh, they would have been left alone without your help in terms of medical support. So what you do is just such a fine thing and it's very much appreciated, certainly in terms of the plaudits that you get in Australia. And I want to thank you so much for coming in to talk to us on 94.1 FM, 3WBC, and uh, I wish you every success for the balance of this uh, 16, 17 year and and into next year in fact. Thank you. How many years you continue to go there? Well, we'd also I've got to thank the dedication of the Glenferry uh, Rotary for backing me because uh, it, we've got a very good program that just does keep needing its uh, support. But it's amazing seeing the improvement from when I first went across. So we have achieved a lot, but still a lot more to achieve. And we, it takes time. You are to be praised, and that's why you were recognised by the Australian Government with uh, your AM. Um, because you do have a very frenetic life in private practice and to do what you do uh, is so much aligned to the Rotary motto of service above self. So thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This podcast was produced and presented by Ian Salick of Rotary District 9800 in Victoria, Australia. Podcasts can be found on iTunes by searching for Rotary Radio then scrolling to Doing Good in Victoria or by visiting the Rotary Club of Canterbury website at www.canterburyrotary.org.